last Sunday at about 12.20 p.m. Pacific, about the time when Joseph was wrapping up our second gathering, 26-year-old Devin Patrick Kelly walked into the First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, Texas, a city about 30 miles east of San Antonio, and gunned down 26 people while injuring 20 more. Kelly later fled the scene and after a high-speed chase crashed and was found dead with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. It was the deadliest mass shooting by an individual in Texas as well as the deadliest shooting in North America in a place of worship in modern history. Kelly's estranged second wife sometimes attended the church with her family. She and her family were not attending church that day, however. Kelly, a professed atheist, had helped with the church's VBS in the past. The shooting occurred during the church's Sunday service. Twenty-three died inside the church, two outside, and one in a hospital nearby. The ages of the victims ranged from the unborn to 77 years of age. About half of the victims were children, one of them the 14-year-old daughter of the pastor of the church, Frank Pomeroy, who was actually not at the church at the time. Nine of those killed, including the visiting preacher, Brian Holcomb, and his pregnant daughter-in-law were from the same family. The shooting brought gasps, to say the least. Gun lobbyists and their counterparts quickly took their positions. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton proposed that churches employ professional armed security or at least arm more parishioners to, count, to counter church shootings, which he said, and I quote him, have happened forever and will happen again. Speculations surrounding the motive for the shooting are myriad, most falling under the heading of conspiracy theories, none of which I want to get into today. Instead, what I want to do today is ask why. My name is Norm. I'm one of the pastors here at Westside. I want to welcome you here. In light of what we're going to be hitting today, would you join me in prayer? <clears throat> Father, in these minutes ahead, I pray that by, by way of your spirit, you would, you would rest on all of us. Uh, help us um, to see things, to discover answers, perhaps simply find a place where we can draw close to you, even if we don't understand everything that goes on, draw close to you and find comfort, find comfort with one another. Uh, Father, my prayer also is that in these minutes ahead that you would help me to pre preach and teach clearly with unction, without shame or embarrassment, but tenderly at the same time, uh, gently, so that things would be not hindered uh, in the presentation. So help me, I am a man most desperate for help in this, so help me and help all of us. For your glory's sake, I pray, amen. And so as I said, I want to ask why. Why do, why do things that took place last Sunday and so many more besides take place? Why is it that a group of people can get up, shower, dress themselves, make their way to church to worship God no less, and have their lives ended that morning by a madman? I hesitated breaking from our Matthew series today and broaching this subject, but felt compelled to do so, not only because of the events of last weekend, but because the existence of evil is the number one reason why people say they don't believe in God. If God were real and as good and as loving and as powerful as many believe that he is, then the evil that took place in Texas or Las Vegas or Orlando, or Charleston, or Sandy Hook, or New York wouldn't have. 
all horrific events. But their impact, in fact, quite small when we compare them to the genocides of the last hundred years. Genocides of Rwanda or Darfur or Cambodia or Bangladesh or 1930s and 40s Germany, just to name a few. Why do these events happen? Why is there evil at all? Why doesn't God do something? I mean, if you had the chance to stop it, wouldn't you? If you were standing on a street corner and you saw an old lady getting mugged, you wouldn't just stand back and watch, would you? But isn't that what God did last Sunday? Doesn't God, in a very real sense, do that every day? He sees, and he doesn't act. And, and make no mistake, God sees. Jesus saying of his father that a sparrow doesn't fall from a tree without his father knowing about it. Therefore, God saw Kelly load his gun, get into his truck, drive to the church, walk into a building, and gun down dozens of people, killing 26 in the process. And he did nothing. Why? Well, here are some of the more popular answers that you'll hear today. The first, there is no God. So the question isn't why as much as how can we stop this from happening again? Why questions are asked, but not pertaining to the existence of evil itself, but more connected to questions like why did this guy snap? Or why are guns so available? And why didn't we see the signs? And so on, and so on. So there is no God. But a cosmos, absent of God, does lead to other questions, though. Among them, our ability to determine what ultimately is good and evil in the first place. A second answer that you'll hear today. There is a God... But he is limited in power and knowledge. And therefore, he would have done something, but he just couldn't. Or he would have done something, but found out in real time along with the rest of us. But if God is limited in power and knowledge, then isn't his status as God in question? And besides, what do we do with the many claims in the Bible, some from the mouth of God himself, that declares that he is almighty? El Shaddai. Is he or is he not? Maybe he's not almighty, maybe he's just simply really mighty, or mightier than you or me. Kind of mighty, but certainly not almighty. So that's the second answer that people give. A third, there is a God, but he is limited in goodness. He's more like Jabba the Hutt. He's a God, but he's not a good God, or something like that. He's not the father of the prodigal, in other words. But if God is limited in goodness, then the question is, is he worthy of our worship and trust? How can you place your faith in a God who is not completely good? Here's another answer. There is a God, but he is limited in involvement. This is the deistic belief in God. His role was to get the world spinning, so to speak, but that's where his involvement ends. It's up to us to get along after that. He's God after all. He cannot, he cannot be concerned with little peons like you and me. So he's indifferent. He's limited in his involvement. It's another popular answer today. Another, there is a God, but he is limited by our free will. This is very common today. As one prominent blogger wrote, God is love 
And therefore, he doesn't force us to do anything. Which I suppose would mean that any interruption by a parent on the free will of their child would be unloving too. Something to think about when your child wants to run across a busy street. Don't be unloving. Don't interrupt their free will. But that's an answer that people give. Here's another. There is a God, but he is limited by a fallen cosmos. So evil things happen because the world and we in it are affected by sin. And when you marry that to a limited God, then don't be surprised when bad things happen. Even when they happen to good people. This is the world in which we live. Simply, but sadly. That is the answer that people give as well. So there are your options. That's essentially it. Those are your options. There's no God or God is limited in whatever way. Either self-limited by his very nature or limited by our free will, indifference, or something along those lines. But the question is, are they the pictures that the Bible paints when it comes to God? A Bible, by the way, that doesn't shy away from this topic. In fact, it accentuates it again and again with the pleas of some of its major players found within it. Major players like King David, for example, who cried out in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Why are you so far from me? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. So the Bible doesn't shy away from this topic. It's also a Bible that goes to great pains in connection with it, this topic in other words, to highlight God's limitless power and complete goodness and flawless trustworthiness in the midst of evil's existence. And yet, a God who for a time has chosen not to rid the cosmos of sin and evil while still declaring his complete and unmitigated sovereignty over it. How do we reconcile this? How do we do it? Well, before addressing that question, let me give you two brief preface statements just to make sure that we understand this before diving into it further. Here's the first. Although the Bible in general is clear on the topic of evil and its existence, it doesn't give us permission to conclude on specific situations. Let me, let me explain this. Uh, don't put the text on the screen just yet. Let me just set it up if you don't mind. In Luke chapter 13, there is this event taking place, this scenario where Jesus is pressing in on his, his audience. And he brings up a couple of events, current events, things that have taken place um, that have led people to conclude certain, certain things about why they took place. One of them was a tower, a tower in a place called Siloam that fell down and killed 18 people. What seems to have taken place are people in other locations concluding why. Doing what many people do today, sadly, in the church. Concluding the reason why this took place is God was taking care of them. He was ridding the world of them. This took place because where they live is evil or what they do is evil. And so this took place because of that. This is what Jesus says in light of that sort of mindset. Or those 18, he's given another illustration. This is a second. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? In other words, you've concluded this. This is why this has taken place. And Jesus says, you have no idea what you're talking about. 
So we can address this topic in general and we can build a theology around it, but we are warned against making conclusions specifically. And so I can tell you why cancer exists. I can tell you why it exists. But I can't tell you why your spouse got cancer and mine didn't. And I can tell you why mass shootings take place. But I can't tell you why this one did. And I can tell you why tsunamis occur, but I can't tell you why one hits a particular shore and not another location. None of us can. And anytime we think we know the reason why, Jesus says, get over yourself. Second preface statement. There is a season for everything. And one of those seasons is the season to do nothing more when confronted by the after effects of an evil act, to do nothing more than to mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep. Nothing more. To put it another way, there is a wrong time to say the right thing. But there are times, too, where we must consider topics like these and seek answers and discover what God and his word have to say on the topic. You see, Westside, there is a difference between saying nothing and having nothing to say. Many do a good job saying nothing in the moment, as you should, as we all should, but have nothing good to say thereafter. That is not an option for us. As I said, this is the number one reason why people don't believe in God, and so we need to study to show ourselves approved so that we would have an answer for the hope that's in us in spite of the crap that goes on around us. We need to be trained in the light for the dark times that come. With all of that serving as an introduction, let me attempt to serve you well by painting a biblical picture for you as it's related to this topic. And I'll begin by giving you three certain, certain realities that the Bible gives us. Here's reality number one. God exists and is altogether good, powerful, and knowing. Psalm 136 verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 147 verse 5. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Job 42 verse 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then God through the prophet Isaiah states, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Reality number two, evil exists. Even the most hardened must confess this. Try as some do to philosophize it away. But in spite of people's efforts that way, so often it's their reactions to the events they see that give their true feelings away. No matter how many books you write that try to philosophize this away, how many papers you present, how many initials you have after your name, what happens in your gut when you see it and when you hear it? And how do you reconcile that? Evil exists. Horrific evil. Third reality. God is not the originator of evil. But is sovereign over it. John writes this in 1 John 1.5. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. 
James writes that God cannot be tempted with evil and he tempts no one. And yet, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. God is faithful and he will not let us be tempted beyond our ability, but provides a way of escape. God doesn't tempt He's not tempted. He doesn't tempt with evil, but he is sovereign over it to the point where he won't allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but provides always a way of escape. So not a tempter of evil, but certainly sovereign over it. So the question is, where does evil originate? Where does it come from? Well, Paul gives us a clear answer in Romans 5, verse 12, writing there, sin entered the world through Adam and death through sin. In this way, death spread to all people because all sin. So there's our answer. Death and disease and bloodshed and rape and deceit and bigotry and abuse and so on and so on, came by way of the sin, and sin of Adam and continues today by way of ours. As J.I. Packer writes, fallen creatures themselves bear full responsibility for their sin. And all evil in the universe emanates from the sins of fallen creatures. But here's where the tension increases, does it not? You see, the tension increases at this point, and I get it. In preparation, I knew this is the moment where it would really get ratcheted up. For if God is sovereign and is all-knowing, he knows the end from the beginning, he would have known that Adam and Eve were going to sin. And therefore, he bears the responsibility for sin and evil thereafter. That's the tension point. Well, I agree with the first part of the statement. With all of my heart, I agree with the first part of the statement. God did know that Adam and Eve would sin. As we saw earlier, God knows the end from the beginning. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. He's the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He's the author and the perfecter. And therefore, he's never surprised. Paul affirms this idea in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, writing that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Therefore, before Adam and Eve existed, God chose us in Christ. In Christ. And therefore, Christ and the cross of Christ were always the plan. Always the plan. Peter affirms this in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2 at the launch of the New Testament church, stating in verse 23 of Acts 2, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Therefore, the plan of the cross didn't come in the aftermath of Adam and Eve's sin, but preemptively to it. Peter, in his first epistle, writes in chapter 1, verse 20, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times. Why? For our sake. So I agree with the first part of that earlier statement, but... Where I disagree is with the suggestion that knowing something beforehand makes you culpable for it taking place thereafter. You see, Adam and Eve didn't sin because they were set up to sin. They sinned because they chose to rebel against God in spite of being given every reason not to. But here's where the question at this point is asked, coming out of that. And it goes to the crux of this topic, and let's dive into it. The, the crux of this topic and the question posed at this moment is, if God knew before Adam and Eve sinned, 
that they would, then even if he wasn't responsible for it, wouldn't it have been better off that he didn't create any of us at all? It's a really important question. I mean, think of the heartache that it would have saved. So wouldn't it have been better off if he didn't create any of us at all? But here's my question in response. Would it have been? Would it have been better if God had just not made us? That's the tension here. It's a vital question to ask, for as I've stated, the Bible teaches that even if God is not responsible for sin and the evil its birth, he is still sovereign over it. And therefore, he allows it. In fact, he uses it. for a greater good. I state that coming out of a really important verse, last chapter of Genesis. For those of you who have studied the book of Genesis, it ends with Joseph in Egypt. Joseph sold out by his brothers. Tell their daddy he's been killed. He gets down into Egypt works his way up, second in command, famine brings his brothers down to Egypt, family. They have this moment where Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. They're fearful, as you could understand, for their life. They did a great evil against Joseph. They did a great evil against their daddy. This is the response of Joseph in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it. God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. When you read that, when we read that, where our minds should immediately go to is the cross. What you meant for evil God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. But I know the pushback, because I've read the books like some of you have. The push, pushback at this point is, no, that, that just can't be. It must be instead that he would do something, but he just can't. As I talked about earlier, he's limited to do so. Or he won't. For he is more committed to, def to deferring to our free will. He can't or he won't. It's the only options in people's eyes. But does that satisfy you? That the answer is that God is limited in power. I mean, what kind of God is that? Or he's unwilling to overrule our free will. If that's the case, then who truly is the God in that relationship? And besides, if we cry out to God to intervene over that which is evil, wouldn't it demand that he intervene over we who are evil? And therefore, if that were to take place, he would have to overrule our free will. And if God's love for us is depicted in his deference to our free will, as some suggest, as I read earlier, why would we ever pray that he do something so, quote-unquote, unloving as to step in its way? But those are the options. But what if there's an alternative? 
An alternative that says, no, God is all-powerful and all-knowing and entirely sovereign, and in spite of what we see around us, it wouldn't have been better if he chose not to create us at all. What if that's an option? Well, with that ringing in our ears, let me begin wrapping up. Soft wrap-up. Don't get your hopes up. Soft wrap-up. Let me begin wrapping up by giving you nine not ten, nine. I'm thinking of you. By giving you nine ways God's sovereignty over evil and its current allowance serves a greater good, moving us towards a more glorious end. Reason number one, and I will say this as I begin with reason number one, the first three more relate to how evil serves us now. Evil, suffering, heartache, trials, tribulations, illness, disease, and the like. How those serve us now. And then when I get to reason number four, we'll begin talking about what that greater good is. Here's the first. The first way evil serves us. The presence of evil serves to evidence the gross effects of sin. All you have to do is look around to see the gross effects of sin. We see it every day. But the evil out there also reminds us of its presence in here, and it should, in each of us. For physical evil is the result of spiritual evil. It's easy to cry out over what we see in our world, but do we have the same concern over what we see in us? Second way the presence of evil serves, serves us. The presence of evil serves to wake us out of our stupors. It's to wake us up. That's why the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, in his uh, book of Ecclesiastes, writes that if he had to choose, he would prefer to go to a funeral than a birthday. He says funerals are better than birthdays. And the reason why funerals are better than birthdays is because there's something beyond the sun. There's more than just this life. And what funerals do is they cause us to ask the questions, the really important questions of life and eternality. That's why few people like to go to funerals, because few people like to consider those questions. That's why all you have to do is look at a funeral and the aftermath in the, the time, I don't know, in the basement of a church or wherever where everybody's having nibblies, why there's a group of people who can't wait to get to the open bar. And just numb themselves from thinking. But that's what evil does. It causes us to wake up. Causes us to ask the questions. And there is nothing more evil than death, the Bible tells us. For it is the antithesis of how we were created to be. But its present day, but its presence, excuse me, is an everyday reality that causes us, calls us to wake up. It's to serve us in that way. Number three. The presence of evil serves to build us up. Evil, again, suffering, trials, tribulations, and the like serve to build us up. Paul writes, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus demonstrated his perfection by his sufferings. We move towards our perfection by joining him in his. To what end? Christ-likeness. Which begins answering the question, what is the greater good? Moving us towards Christ-likeness, leading us to that day where we see Jesus face to face, and what is the result? We become like him. Which leads to the fourth. Fourth way the presence of evil serves. It serves to accentuate God's goodness and love. This is the greater good. This is why our present reality is better than God not creating us in the first place. John writes in 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. Paul writes in Romans 5, 7, and 8, perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God 
shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't simply declare that he loves us. He shows us. We can know it. This is evil being divinely used to accentuate the glory of God's love and goodness. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Leading to a fifth reason. The presence of evil serves to remind us that it was entered and it was defeated. The righteous died for the unrighteous. The good died for the evil. The perfect for the imperfect. The friend for the foe. Creator for creation. It reminds us. Reminds us of that fact. You see, I have read much that attempts to let God off the hook, so to speak, when it comes to the presence of evil, but the fact is he never wanted to be off the hook. We don't have to apologize for God. We don't have to recreate God in a way that he said, I'm not like that. To quote Peter Kreeft, God is the hook. That's the point of the cross. We do not worship an absentee landlord who ignores the slum. We worship a garbage man God who came right down into our worst garbage to clean it up. What happens when you marry the greatest evil with the greatest good? That. Which answers the question one more time. What is greater than God having not created anything at all? Well, the glory and the majesty of the cross. Where God is made much of, and our evil and sin remedied, and we receiving that which is best. God himself. And that is better by far. Westside, if God looked down the line, thinking about creating Adam and Eve, And in looking down that line, saw that they would sin and concluded, I'm not going to do it. Who wins? Sin wins. Evil wins. Satan wins. Death wins. If God looked down the line and said, if that's going to happen, I'm going to submit to that and succumb to that, then he is not God Almighty. But God didn't submit or succumb, but he proved to be more than a conqueror over them. They serve his purposes. He uses sin and evil and Satan and death to testify to his glory, power, majesty, goodness, love, grace, and righteousness resulting in the saving of many lives. Six. The presence of evil calls us to fight against it. We are to be people of justice and goodness. And we are to rally against that which runs contrary to both. We are to repent of our evil and work against their evil. We we, we are to respond to evil, for in responding to evil, it makes much of the cross. Evil should be hated, and we should mourn, and we should scream, and we should be grieved. We We should be angry, all of it, and we should fight against it. We are to hate what is evil and cling to what is good, Romans 12, 9. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil, Proverbs 8, 13. So we are to fight against it. Seven. The presence of evil serves to remind us that an end is coming. 
This is why Paul writes this in Colossians 3, 5, and 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Every why question, every how long question, God will answer. Every question. The blood of people cries out to him. And he will respond. And the only reason that he hasn't responded is he's patient. Because he wants more people to come to Jesus. God does not stand back and merely watch and do nothing. He is going to respond to everything he sees. Everything. On, on account of this, the wrath of God is coming. So if you cry out, why? No, he's answered. He will. He's given us a taste already. The question is, will you stand when he does? Will you stand? Will you stand? Attempt to stand on your own or respond to the work of Jesus on your behalf. Taking that for us. Responding to it by faith and receiving the grace of Jesus on our behalf. The wrath that was poured out on the Son, not poured out on you. So, so know that God is going to respond. To every, he's going to respond to last Sunday. He's promised to. Number eight. The presence of evil calls us to trust. It demands that our faith be manifest. To walk by faith and not by sight. It calls us to trust in God's goodness and sovereignty even when the events around us spin seemingly out of control. It asks, will you believe in the dark and the delusional times? As Priscilla Owens writes, will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife? What it means is that God's goodness can't be measured in the temporal. It calls us to build a trust not founded on the events around us, but in God's presence in us. To remember in the dark those things learned in the light. And to walk in the light undergirded, undergirded by those precious things learned in the dark. Finally, number nine. The presence of evil serves to remind us that God is God and we are not. To quote a pastor friend of mine, just because we can see no reason for the many things that are going on doesn't mean that there is none. It simply means that we can't see it. And trust that God can. It means that we walk in the promise of Romans 8.28 where Paul writes, And we know that for those who God, and we know that for those who love God, excuse me, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Not all good things. Not only good things, all things. All things working. Things like what? Evil things. Things like distress and tribulation and persecution and famine and nakedness and sword. Things like that. Wrapping up what Paul says in Romans 8.37, this concluding statement, in all these things, that list, that's the context. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why more than conquerors? Because they serve us. They serve to display to the world the grandeur of the grace of the glory of God. We don't succumb to them, they serve us. A book was mentioned to me recently, written by a woman named Helen Rosevere. She a, was a British medical missionary, a medical missionary in the Congo in 1953 to 1973. She wrote many books, one of them, Living Faith, I commend it to you. Um, 
it, in it, it, it records the many times where, where God supplied the needs of this, this, this mission in Congo. And in one of the chapters, she highlights some occasions when, when he did. Let me read the following for you. On other occasions, material goods were given rather than cash, but equally the right goods at the right time. One night, I had worked hard to help a mother in, la- in, a, in the labor ward, but despite all we could do, she died, leaving us with a tiny, premature baby and a crying two-year-old daughter. We would have difficulty in keeping the baby alive as we had no incubator. We had no electricity to run a, an incubator and no special feeding facilities. Despite living on the equator, nights were often chilly with treacherous, treacherous drafts. One pupil midwife went for the box we used for such babies and the cotton wool they were wrapped in. Another went to stoke up the fire and fill a hot, hot water bottle. She came back shortly in distress to tell me that in filling the bottle, it had burst. Rubber perishes easy in tropical climates. And it is our last hot water bottle, she exclaimed. As in the West, it is no good crying over spilled milk. And so in Central Africa, Africa, it might be considered no good crying over burst hot water bottles. They do not grow on trees, and there are no drugstores down forest pathways. All right, I said, put the baby as near the fire as you safely can. Sleep between the baby and the door to keep it free from the drafts. Your job is to keep that baby warm. The following noon, I went to have prayers with any of the orphanage children who chose to gather with me, as I did many days, on most days. I gave the youngsters various suggestions of things to pray about and told them about the tiny baby. I explained our problem about keeping the baby warm enough, mentioning the burst hot water bottle. The baby could so easily die if it got chilled. I also told them about the two-year-old sister crying because her mother had died. During prayer time, one 10-year-old girl, Ruth, prayed with the usual blunt conciseness of our African children. Please, God, she prayed, send us a hot water bottle. It'll be no good tomorrow, God, as the baby will be dead, so please send it this afternoon. (laughs) While I gasped inwardly at the audacity of the prayer, she added, and while you're about it, would you please send a dolly for the little girl so she'll know that you really love her? As often with the children's prayers, I was put on the spot. Could I honestly say amen? I just did not believe that God could do this. Oh yes, I know that he can do everything. The Bible says so, but there are limits, aren't there? And it had some very big buts. The only way God could answer this particular prayer would be by sending me a parcel from the homeland. I had been in Africa for almost four years at the time, and I had never, never received a parcel from home anyway. And besides, if anyone did send me a parcel, who would put in a hot, hot water bottle? I lived on the equator. Halfway through the afternoon, while I was teaching in the nurses' training school, a message was sent that there was a car at my front door. By the time I reached home, the car had gone, but there on the veranda was a large 22-pound parcel, all done up with paper and string and bearing UK stamps. I felt tears pricking my eyes. I could not open the parcel alone, so I sent for the orphanage children. Together, we pulled off the string, carefully undoing each knot. We folded the paper, taking care not to tear it unduly. Excitement was mounting. Some 30 to 40 pairs of eyes were focused on the large cardboard box. From the top, I lifted out brightly colored knitted jerseys. Eyes sparkled as I gave them out. Then there were knitted bandages for the leprosy patients, and the children looked a little bored. Then a large bar of soap, and the children were probably more bored. Then a box of mixed raisins and sultanas that would make a nice batch of buns for the weekend. 
Then, as I put my hand in again, I felt the, could it really be? I grasped it and pulled it out. Yes, a brand new rubber hot water bottle, I cried. I had not asked God to send it. I had not truly believed that he could. Ruth was in the front row of the children. She rushed forward crying out, if God has sent the bottle, he must have sent the dolly too. (laughs) Rummaging down to the bottom of the box, she pulled out the small, beautifully dressed dolly. Her eyes shone. She had never doubted. Looking up at me, she asked, can I go over with you, mommy, and give this dolly to the little girl so that she'll know that Jesus really loves her? That parcel had been on the way for five whole months. Packed up by my old Christian Union class, the leader had heard and obeyed God's prompting to send a hot water bottle even to the equator. And one of the girls had put in a dolly for an African child five months before in answer to the believing prayer of a 10-year-old to bring it that afternoon. Westside is God Almighty. Is he the same yesterday, today, and forever? Does he know the end from the beginning? Is he worthy of our trust? Indeed he is even when things around us tempt, tempt us to think otherwise. Would you join me in prayer? Oh, Father, as we respond in in light of this heavy message, I know it's a heavy message. Even if we don't fully understand I pray that we would draw close, resting assured that even though we see dimly here, that you in your goodness and your power are in control that there is a plan and purpose coming together for the glory of your name and our good, our good. So, Father, I think of the cry of the man in the Gospels stating, I believe, help me in my unbelief. I, I pray. I'm sure all of us, in certain regards, that resonates with us, especially in light of this, this topic. So I pray that that during this time, this would just be sweet time, just drawing close to you, that you help us, that this topic would not cause people to run from you, but to you. Jesus, thank you for coming and taking the evil for us. Thank you. We know what love is. So thank you. Amen.